Lord, your word has made it so clear. Let all that has breath praise the Lord. All of creation sings the glory of the King. And if we close our mouths, even the rocks will cry out and declare that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the name that is above every name. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first of the faithful witnesses. He is the King of kings. He is the sovereign ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe. He gives life and breath and being to every single part, molecule, and speck of the universe. You are sitting, reigning on the throne. You have defeated sin and death for all time. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? We give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his blood is drawing all men from all nations who call on his name to himself for salvation. You are building your church. You are the head of this church right now. So God, you say what you want to say. Do what you want to do in this place and find us ready to receive. As we humble ourselves under your mighty hand right now, let us not in pride back away from your word or make excuses why it doesn't apply to us. But right now we humble ourselves and say, you're the king, I'm your servant. You have authority, I don't. What you say goes. And so Father, would you find a church that is faithful to say, I wanna see Jesus. I wish to see Jesus. Help me, Jesus, Lord, I need you. You are not looking for help, God. You are looking for those who call for help. Do a saving and sanctifying and unifying work in this place. Guard my mouth from error and say what you want to say for the glory of your name in your church. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Mother's Day, ladies. It is a wonderful blessing to be back in the house of the Lord as a church family this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. If you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, our ushers are coming forward right now. Just slide your hand up. We want to put a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. And the page number of that text today is page 579 in those Bibles that are being handed out. 579, and the text is Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. Well, as was mentioned earlier last week, we began a new series called God's Heart for the Church, and this is from the book of Titus, and the focus of this series is really answering the question, what is the blueprint what is the portrait that God has given for what a healthy church and as such, healthy believers are to look like? What is God's portrait for the church? And last week, we looked at how God has called the church to live on mission for him. And this week, we're looking at one of the greatest indicators of the health of the church, one which impacts literally every other part of the church and the lives of the believers in it. And that is this 
church leadership. Church leadership. God's heart for the church is a heart for godly leadership. And you say, why is it so important? This is one of four major texts that God has given us in his word that outlines his qualifications for leadership in the church. Why is this so important that he would devote this section of text, these six verses in the book of Titus, right at the start of it? Why didn't he wait till later on? Why was it so key? It's at the beginning of the book. Well, this is why this is important, because there's a desperate need for godly leadership in the church today. There is a, let me, let me sum that up. There is a leadership crisis in the church today. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Why? Because unhealthy leaders mean unhealthy churches. Unhealthy leaders mean unhealthy churches. Unhealthy churches mean unhealthy believers. And you look around today in our society and you see very clearly there's a problem. There's an increasing confusion and distortion of what godly leadership should look like in the church what God calls his leaders to be, and how God calls his leaders to lead. Increasingly, churches are adopting the principles, methods, and characteristics the world says leaders should have over what God has stated in his word that his leaders must have if they and the churches they lead are to survive and thrive for his glory in what is coming against them. Just look around. Increasingly, we see that a leader's charisma is taking precedence over a leader's godly character. Just look around. Increasingly, we see that a leader's perceived relevance to the culture is trumping the leader's reverence before Almighty God. Increasingly, we see that how hip a leader is, is seen as more important than how holy he is. And you may say this, you may be sitting here like, wait a sec, this doesn't even apply to me. I mean, I'm not a leader and I don't want to be. I don't want to be an overseer of the church. This has no meaning for me. Mm -mm. Hold on a second. You say, why is this important for me? Two things I want to say right out of the gate here. The majority of the standards God lays out here aren't just for leaders, but they're for all Christians. They are the standards of godly character and conduct that we are called to. All of us. Whether we're overseeing the church or not. And leaders are specifically mentioned here because we are to set the standard for the flock of God in Christ-like character and conduct that we oversee in the church. But it's what we are all called to. And you will see here, as you look at these six verses, these six verses, are the qualifications for leaders are really the exegesis of the person of Jesus Christ. It is incredible. When we dive into this, this is 
who Jesus is. This is our God. And the portrait of the healthy church, loved ones, is the portrait of the person and life of Jesus Christ. And that is what is on display here beautifully. And that is what we are called to imitate increasingly. And the second reason this is so important is that not, all, not just because all of us are called to this, but the whole congregation, the whole flock of God must understand God's plan for the church leadership if the church is to be healthy and unified. We have to understand this together. And so today we're going to see three marks that God is looking for in those who are called to lead his church if it is to be increasingly healthy, rooted, and established by him and will endure for his glory as the days continue to get darker. You guys ready? Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word and we'll stand by reading verses 4 to 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. To Titus... My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, starting to get hot under the collar here, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Welcome to the portrait of Jesus Christ, loved ones. All God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Well, the first thing we see here is that a faithful overseer is one who, first mark is this, understands the charge from Christ. Oversight. He understands the charge from Christ, oversight. Look at verses four to five again. And as we do that, here's the question that this truth confronts us with right out of the gate. Elders are called to provide for and to protect the flock. Am I praying for them? Am I praying for them? Let's read verses four to five. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Let's get some context. You always want to interpret scripture in context. Recall this. The apostle Paul had planted churches on the island of Crete with his son in the faith, Titus. He most likely led Titus to the faith and Timothy was another example of one of Paul's sons in the faith. And you'll see, here's the picture of Crete. It's in the southern Greece, and it's on this island. It's only about 160 miles uh, wide and 35 miles, or 160 miles across, 35 miles wide. And then and we see here in, uh, in the text from last week, we see that it was, it was known for its immorality, its immoral lifestyles that it was promoting. And these are young churches that Paul has just planned. They're two to three years old. 
and they're being influenced by this. And notice here, verse 4 to 5, after Paul gives a standard New Testament greeting to Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, he goes on to say in verse 5 that Paul had left Titus in Crete to help strengthen and establish the churches by putting in order. That is meaning to straighten out the wrong doctrine and practices in the church that remained. Titus's mission was to put it in order, to straighten out what was broken. And how was, why did it get into this state? Why was the church in this state? Well, remember from last week, false teachers were twisting. They were twisting God's word and promoting immoral lifestyles, even ones that the culture was promoting. And we see this, we'll see this very significantly starting in verse 10 next week that we'll talk about when we talk about false teaching. But the church was in desperate need of godly leadership or it would divide and crumble. New church, new believers, young in the faith, fledgling and Paul, remember the tone of this book, he's writing with great urgency. He's not giving a lot of fluff to Titus here. He's writing with great urgency. This has to happen now because they need serious and quick attention or things are going south. And we see in verse 5 that Paul tells Titus the very first step in how he was to do this is to appoint elders. Now the word appoint there is very important. The Greek means this, to put in charge or in place. See, here's the reality. Titus was to specifically select faithful elders who would oversee the churches in every town they planted him. This wasn't some random thing. Hey, you dress really nice. Want to sit on the elder board? Hey, you've been in the church a little while. You've been doing some stuff. You want to just come sit on the elder board for us to oversee it? Hey, you've got lots of money. Do you want to come jump on the elder board? Hey, you've got lots of experience in the last church that you were a part of. You, you, want, to, you want to come? We could really use someone to fill the seat. You got a pulse? You want to come? The key word there is a point. This was not a random selection. He was to appoint the elders. As, and he was to appoint them How? He says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Why is that so important? See, because Titus was to appoint them as directed by Paul, based on, as we saw last week, his apostolic authority given to him by Christ, which ultimately meant that these men were to be appointed by Jesus Christ, the head of the church, in his sovereignty, as his word was followed and his standards were kept and passed on to Titus through Paul. And it's the same as today. It's the same as today. So let's get some clarity and illustrate what's the, what we're talking about here when we hear the term elders, because a lot of things can come to mind. Well, the term elders in the Greek, you'll see it also in verse 7. If you just scan down there, first three, where the third word in verse 7, he says, we're used interchangeably with overseer. Okay? And the role is these uh, a mature spiritual leader of the church. A man called by God. Notice that? Appointed, called by God. Not by human preference. 
Not by what culture says we are to promote and to exhort in our leaders. Called by God, his standards, his authority to watch over God's flock by providing. How do we do that? By providing firsthand love, protection, and care for it. Love, protection, and care for it. See, we go on to see here in verse 7. Skip down for a sec. For an overseer as God's steward. He goes on to say, what's a steward? This is the Greek term there. The picture is a manager of a household. Okay? Where, where wealthy owners would, would have managers over their house. So like a superintendent of the house. To watch over it. To care for it. To protect it. On behalf of the master. And specifically the role of elders as we will see here in a moment. They were to manage God's truth. They were to manage the truth of God through the teaching and preaching and defending and upholding of God's word. They were to manage that. But also, they were to live on God's behalf as an example of Christ to the flock increasingly. Not perfectly. There isn't a perfect elder on this planet just like there's no perfect Christians on this planet, but increasingly. 1 Peter 5, another section of text that focuses on elders' role in shepherding the flock of God makes this clear. We are to be examples of Christ's likeness increasingly for the flock. So they're to manage God's truth through teaching, preaching, defending, and upholding the word. We are to live on God's behalf as an example of Christ to the flock increasingly. But also, the third role, as we will see here, is that we are to be accountable to God in all. That should make us shudder as elders. We are accountable to God for every word of teaching that goes forward in this church. We are accountable to God to increasingly seek his face and beg him to help us live increasingly Christ-like in our character. And we are accountable to God to hold firm to the trustworthy word passed down and not compromise, no matter what the cost. And we are accountable for the doctrine, discipline, and direction of the church. So what we need to see first off is this. We must understand this is not a light thing. We have this like mentality in the world today. You just, everyone can step into leader. I want leadership. I want this. Be careful. Be very careful. This is not a light thing. Godly leadership and oversight. This is not a power trip for elders. This isn't a, well, I'm going to get on the board. I'm going to throw my weight around and domineer. Just look at 1 Peter 5. Do not domineer over the flock. This is not a game. Well, I'm coming. I'm going to step onto the elder board for me so I can look really holy and spiritual. This is not a game. The call to be an elder is a call not to comfort. The call to be an elder is not a call to convenience. The call to be an elder is not a call to ease. Your life's not going to get easier, it's going to get a lot harder. The target on your back increases in size. 
The call to be an elder is not a call to domineer over the flock. It's not to whip the sheep, it's to shepherd them and love them and protect them and care for them and defend the purity and holiness of God's church. The call to be an elder, if I could sum it up as this, is a call to tremble in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because elders are going to give an account to Christ for this church that they oversee. Why? Here's the imagery that hit me last night in final review for this message. And it was, the church is Christ's bride. If someone messes with my bride, I have a problem with that. A big problem with that. How much more the bride of the sovereign king of the entire universe? You think he'll have a problem with that? Yes. Yes, he will. And this is why it's so important that anyone called to this role of overseer must understand the charge of oversight they've been given by Christ and the cost that comes with it. There will be a cost relationally with others who don't agree with a doctrinal stance of the church. There will be a cost practically in how you live your life and the standard that you are called to model there will be a cost in your family your kids your wife will pay the price it's not a well he's the elder so it's his thing no they're in the trenches with you too there will be a cost spiritually and so in the spirit and truth of 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, I would just ask you this question. Will you commit to praying for us as an elder board? Would you? It's not getting any easier to be an elder as the days get darker. Would you commit to praying for our families, for us as overseers, And for the future elders of this church that God willing he will raise up to shepherd this flock faithfully. Here's a picture of our elder board right now. I love these men so much. So there's myself on the ground here and then the other five are elders of Hope Bible Church Oakville which is our planting church and they will be on as transition elders until we see men qualified and raised up here from within our own local church. And so there's Robbie Simons and Greg McFarlane and Colin Spitoff. Chris Dias, Jeff Armitage, and myself, and I just love these men, and it's one of the greatest privileges we have to be in the trenches every week, caring for the flock of God, but it's also the biggest weight. Will you pray for them and their families that ultimately that we would aim to love God and please him and serve him and obey him alone in the shepherding of his people? Why, why? Because it isn't getting any easier and any man, 
any man who does not understand this charge clearly in the ministry is not fit to minister. You are not fit if we do not understand this charge. When th- why, why? Because when things get tough, that man will quit. When times get hard, he will break and he will run. When he must make a decision that's not popular, he will back down in a fear of man and not a fear of the Lord. No, no, loved ones. God's leaders get their marching orders from King Jesus. He's the king. He's the head. And he must look, that overseer, that elder must look to him alone for approval and applause. Hope Bible Church, Ottawa, I love you dearly and would give my life for you. We do as a family every week to lay it down. But I am not seeking your applause. I'm seeking to shepherd you faithfully and love you increasingly as Christ loves his church. And I can say the same for every one of our other elders on this board. Men who've been broken, tested, and proven faithful to do the same. A faithful overseer is one who understands the charge from Christ. And if they are to live out this charge faithfully, we see point number two here. They must model the character of Christ in being above reproach. And being above reproach. Look at verses 6 to 8. And as we do, we're confronted with this question. Elders are called to embody the gospel increasingly. Am I pursuing this too? Am I pursuing this too? Look at verses 6 to 8. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... If an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Wow. See, we see here that after exhorting Titus to appoint elders, Paul now gives the qualities Titus is looking for in the men that he's calling. And he says that they are to be above reproach. Notice he, he repeats that for emphasis in both verses 6 and verse 7. They are to be above reproach. And this quality of being above reproach is what is known as the umbrella standard that every other one of these character qualities is going to fall under. Okay, What makes a man, a leader, an overseer? In God's church, above reproach, you're about to find out. The the Greek term for above reproach means blameless. Blameless. Above, ready, credible or legitimate accusation. Not convictable when a person is, here's the key, properly scrutinized. Properly scrutinized. And all the facts are on the table. Above reproach. Now, here's what this means, full stop. This doesn't mean 
will never get accused of stuff. Welcome to the world. As the kingdom of God advances and as the darkness around us increases, you don't think there's going to be accusations? You don't think the enemy's going to launch missiles at the overseers of God's church just as he does for the believers of God's church? Accusations to discredit, to distort reputations, faithfulness? Of course he will, because it's a threat. But are they credible? And not just, well, I heard one side, I heard this, it must be true. Really? Really? You sure? Are all the facts on the table? And what we'll see here in laying out the qualifications for leaders in his church, God is primarily concerned with who you are more than what you do. He's concerned about your character more than your competency. Character fuels competency. And so let's drill down right now. We're going to put this on the screen and you'll see above reproach. What are the standards? What does it mean to be above reproach? Again, we're not perfect at it, but increasingly growing in it. Number one, he's to be a faithful husband. Look at verse six. If anyone is above reproach, here it is, the husband of one wife. That literally means, that Greek term literally means one woman man. A husband who is both inwardly and outwardly totally devoted to his wife in affection and sexual purity. In thought, there's the internal peace, and action, there's the external peace. Let's drill down. What does this mean? It means he's not looking at pornography. He's not playing around with that. He flees from it. He has boundaries set up. He has accountability with that. He's not fooling around. He's not flirting with members of the opposite sex. He's totally devoted internally, externally in his affections to his wife. He's not putting himself in compromising situations that could lead to unfaithfulness. And notice this. This isn't just for how he's not to look at the bodies of others, but it's also how he is to display his body to others. Is he living with modesty? The elders aren't the guys showing off their guns. It's not a joke to us. It can't be. There's a spiritual maturity that's needed. Uncompromising. He's loyal to his wife. And there's different interpretations we see here. Some were saying, well, Paul was be talking about polygamy. Well, of course, a guy can't be polygamous in his marriage. Of course. How can he be faithful and totally devoted to one woman? So he's, yes, that includes polygamy. And then there's issues of divorce. Well, what about single guys? Can single guys be elders? And this is where, for these latter two, we need to take this case by case that we see here. Because think about this. If, if single men could never be elders, how could Paul be an elder? How could Christ ever have been an elder? I think I'd want Christ as an elder, don't you? Praise the Lord. We're called to model him. All right, but what all these things have in common, all of them agree on this that Paul is driving home right here. 
and is the focus of this that sexual purity is a prerequisite for holding the office of an elder. And you notice in this list, it comes right near the top. Why? Why? Because without a doubt, it's one of the greatest things that men struggle with the most. What you put your eyes on. What's going on in your heart, in your mind? What are you doing with your actions? Struggle with it the most. And, and the summer coming up, it's not going to go away. So the first thing we see is that you must be a faithful husband. Next, we see verse 6. Keep going. Faithful father. Just read. Let the text speak. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Believers here, so that if an elder has kids, they are to be believers. Now, what we have to understand there is the Greek word means faithful. They are submissive, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3 in a moment. Submissive. These are children who live at home under the authority of their parents, and they are obedient to their fathers and live with a respect and honor for his authority in the home. His authority in the home and the Christian instruction that he is given by God to pass on to them. Here's what this doesn't mean when it says his children must be faithful. Notice what it doesn't mean? His children must be perfect. Loved ones, if we put that weight on our children, it will crush them. Do not do it. They're kids. Are they submissive? Are they honoring their father's and mother's authority in the home? Not are they perfect. Let's get some clarity. What kind of kids is he talking about here? Well, we see in a parallel passage, yet another great expounding of qualifications for godly leadership in 1 Timothy 3. We see there in verse 4 that it says children are to be submissive. What Paul is speaking of to Timothy there, he's focusing on young children in that text. They're to be submissive. But here in Titus, you know the wording's different. Why? Because now he's speaking of older children. Now he's speaking of older children. Paul is speaking of them who are not living. And when he says faithful, it means these older children are not living out open rebelliousness against the gospel. Notice how we know that. Look at the key at the end of verse 6. Because they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is, what that means is excessive behavior, like lust and in excessive spending, excessive lifestyles, excessive choices, and a lifestyle that lacks morals and displays, here it is, a flagrant disobedience to their father, to the Christian faith, and they are not subject to rules. Insubordination. And what we see here from these very first two qualities is this. Is this. The family, you'll see it on the screen, is the proving ground for leadership in the church. First Timothy goes on to say, if you can't manage your own household, 
how can you possibly think to manage the flock of God, the house of God? It's not going to happen. You can't just turn this thing on. Wish I could take six weeks and just unpack those two, but we got to keep moving. First thing, he's a faithful husband. Secondly, faithful father. Third, he's humble. Look at verse 7 and not arrogant. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must be humble, not arrogant. The word arrogant there means self-pleasing. A person who's fixed on self-interest and not the needs of others. The mentality of an arrogant person is, it's me before you. It's me before you. My desires before yours. My way of doing things before yours. You lay your life down for me, but I won't lay mine down for you. That is the picture of arrogance. Why? Because we are called, as we saw last week, that if we are in Jesus Christ, our identity is servanthood. That is our identity in Christ. Servants of Jesus Christ. And there's no room for arrogance because we don't live on our own authority because we've been bought with a price. We live under Christ's authority. A person who is fixed on self-interest displays that arrogance. So ask ourselves the question. Again, these aren't just qualifications for elders. We're all called to these. Elders are called to model these. But let's ask ourselves the question here. Am I laying down my life for others? Or is my kingdom, my comfort, my way more important than God's? Just ask yourself the question. Be honest. Bring it before the Lord. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister. Okay. Keep going. He must be humble, not arrogant. Here it is. Patient, not quick-tempered. Keep going in verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. See, that means he's not prone to anger. This guy doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't harbor resentment when people attack him. He's not harboring resentment against his wife. He's not harboring resentment against his kids. People, and in, 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 let's put it in today's terms, people don't have to walk on eggshells around him wondering if he's going to blow up. You ever been around those people? You're just like, oh, if I see the wrong thing. That's not an, a qualification for an elder. All right? He is to be patient, not quick temper. This is a man who won't blow his stack, but will patiently speak the truth in love to people when it's easy and when it's hard. Why? Because he loves them. Fifthly is this. Must be patient, not quick-tempered. Keep going, verse 7. He must be sober and not a drunkard. See there where it says, or a drunkard. What this means is, the Greek means it's not, he's not given to wine. He's not given to wine. Drinking alcohol in any way that dulls the mind or subdues inhibitions Drinking alcohol in any way that keeps him from being, having a clear mind and being spiritually alert to temptation, being spiritually alert to opposition. And by extension, let's not make excuses, just by extension, it applies to all other substances that could do the same, like drugs. Elders not called to be high, just because it's not directly in the text. The extension is the same principle. Okay? So he's not called to be a drunkard. Keep going. Number six, he must be gentle, 
not violent. See that? He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, or violent. The Greek word for violent there means he can't be a striker. A striker. One who is a verbal or physical bully. One who's going to throw his weight around just to kind of get his way. Whether physically or verbally to intimidate the sheep. That's a disqualifying characteristic. This is a man who is quick to argue, quarrel, or fight. That's what it means to be violent. He's not interested in listening. He's interested in winning. He's not interested in shepherding. He's interested in whipping. Next, he must be content, not greedy. Look at verse 7. Must not be uh, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. He must be content, not greedy. This is one whose primary motive for being in the role of an overseer, being in the role of a pastor, being in the role of leadership, his primary motive isn't money, and he doesn't abuse the ministry for financial gain. He's above reproach in his finances. Yes, at home, and yes, in the church. He's not greedy for gain. He's not taking side trips on the church's dime. He wants to steward the finances of God through God's people faithfully. Because as a shepherd, it's primarily not about what he can get, but it is all about what he can give. Next, he must be hospitable, not isolated. Look at verse 8. But, now he goes to the positives to offset the six negatives we just had. But hospitable. Hospitable, not isolated. This means he's generous to guests. He op- open hearts and open homes to all, including strangers. Now, don't do this. Don't come by at my house at three in the morning. Hey, we're here to hang out, Pastor Ray. I'll be like, it's time for bed. <laughs> Love you. Time for bed. <laughs> but it's like phone goes off. Hey, there's an emergency. All right, let's go. See, this is, this is what it means to be hospitable. He has nothing to hide in his home. He's generous to all, including strangers. Next, number nine, he loves goodness, not evil. Keep reading. But hospitable, a lover of good. This is one who loves what God says is good in both their lives and others. A lover of what God loves and not what the world loves. Are you, is this man increasingly growing in loving what God loves? The values that he calls us to uphold. The honor he calls us to have for him. Next. Ten, he must be self-controlled, not impulsive. Keep reading. Lover of good, self-controlled. This is one who, I love this Greek term, one who is under mental and emotional control. One who's under mental and emotional control. He acts with wisdom and common sense and he lives with right priorities. He lives with right priorities. He doesn't let the good things become the enemy of God's best things. He lives with right priorities as we are all called to. This isn't, well, this is just out. Remember, loved ones, this isn't just, oh, well, this is out. We are called to model this for the sheep. This is all of us, the call that we are called to. 
right priorities. This is a, a person, a man increasingly under God's control through the spirit and not the control of his flesh. Number 11, he must be upright and not deceitful. See there, self-controlled and upright. This is one who in God's eyes is just and serious in his care of dealings with others according to God's word. Not according to his feelings, according to the truth of God. He's just, upright, and serious. Now, this doesn't mean this, that elders, when you see one of us elders, and I hope those of you who know me better than others here, like, I hope you know this, we're not like walking around and down the hall sitting, and when we get into elders' meetings, like, so how's your day? Like, it's not, we're not talking like that. We like to tell, I think I can, I tell jokes. Yeah, I tell jokes. Yeah, that's my wife. I tell jokes, right? Yeah, that's right. I told a good one yesterday. So here's the reality, right? You can tell jokes and you can laugh and that's, that's great. But when it comes to the things of the Lord, it's all serious. There's a standard that we are held to. And if we're not taking it seriously, the attitude of the flock will reflect the attitude of the leadership towards God's word and towards upholding his truth and walking in increasing holiness. No question. Serious. Number 12, he must be holy, not righteous. Just keep reading. Upright and holy. What's this? A man committed to God's truth at all times in increasing godliness and Christ-likeness. See, the prayer that I, we've been praying as a church, and I pray continues, but all more also for, for uh, elders who oversee the church is this, Jesus Christ, you must increase, I must decrease. Always, John 3.30, Jesus Christ, you must increase, I must decrease. Your holiness, your righteousness, your godliness, because apart from you, I can do nothing. That has to be the prayer, the cry of an overseer and a one who's following the Lord, there's a constant progression to match his confession. It's not, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then you just, no progression. Number 13, lastly, he must be disciplined and not excessive. Notice that, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is mastering, the Greek means, mastering or restraining oneself and shows moderation and self-restraint over passions and impulses, lust, Food, money, entertainment, words, thoughts, work, time. He shows restraint. He shows mastery by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I could sum all these up, it'd be this. An elder is to increasingly embody the very character of Christ himself. You have just exegeted the character of Jesus Christ. And an elder is called to increasingly embody the very character of Christ himself and lead, exhort, correct, and encourage others in the church to do the same. So question, as you look at that list, are you pursuing these things in your life? And you say, well, wait a second, I'm not married. I can't be a faithful husband. Are you pursuing sexual purity in your singleness? Men? Are you have accountability for what you're looking at on the screen? Where your eyes go on the bus when you're walking down the street? Are you pursuing that? Women, sexual purity, this isn't just a, a guy problem. Oh, this, you say, well, wait, I don't have any kids. Well, listen, are you taking the opportunities in front of you to train kids in the Lord? Jesus didn't have any of his own children, but he said, let the children come to me. 
Are we doing that? And you're like, well, where are these kids? Well, there's 50 of them down the hall. There's 50 of them down the hall. Service applications at the back or online. Let's get after it, loved ones. That's a sacred entrustment. So where on that list, what is your next step? I don't know about you, but as I see this, loved ones, even as I preach through this, I'm thinking I need a Savior who did this perfectly or I'm toast. And remember this glorious gospel truth. You'll see it on the screen. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. We need a Savior who's gone before us and God gave us one, his only son, Jesus Christ. Fully God, becoming fully man and coming to earth to identify with us in our weakness. Out of love, he came, lived a perfect life of this character. Beautiful. A perfect life, died the death that we deserved on the cross, went to the grave, and three days later, rose again, defeating sin and death for all time, saving us from an eternity apart from him in hell for all those who confess him as their Lord and Savior and repent of their sin. And now, he was raised to the right hand of God and sent us the Holy Spirit to fill us, to power us, to live increasingly like this. That is a living hope. That is our guarantee. We're not on our own. So I don't want you to leave here today thinking, well, I just got to really try to be more self-controlled. It won't last. That'll get to the first stoplight. He's like, Jesus Christ, Lord, I need you. You must increase right now in this situation. I must decrease. When that temptation hits, when I want to have that conflict with my wife, when my kids are pressing me, when I'm, when I'm feeling that discouragement, when I feel isolated, Jesus Christ, you must increase right there. And you came to earth to identify with that. A faithful overseer is one who understands the charge of oversight from Christ, models the character of Christ, lives above reproach, and lastly is this, as we land the plane, he holds firm to the word of Christ with an unwavering conviction. Verse 9, question that we're confronted with, elders hold firm to and teach God's word, am I holding firm to it too? Look at verse 9. He must... Look at that, not an option, it's an imperative, it's a command. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, here, Paul now moves from an elder's personal or character qualifications to his doctrinal and ministerial qualifications. Now, Paul's moving from character to competency, okay? You can't reverse that. Competency has to flow from godly character. And he says, elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word of God. What does that term hold firm mean? Just so we're on the same page. Greek means this, hold fast with deep conviction that will not be swayed to the doctrines of the day. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Now, what's the trustworthy word? The Greek there means the established doctrine that has been passed down to us from Jesus Christ. 
that is not open to just because human tradition wants to have its way, we'll abandon that doctrine and follow this just because it's not popular with the world, then we'll shave a little bit of that off and we'll compromise it here just because I'm gonna be isolated from that person doesn't mean we don't hold fast an unwavering conviction. We don't twist it to make it easier for us to follow or make excuses for our sin in the name of grace. That is not grace. Grace confronts the sin in love and gives us the power to see it overcome in Jesus' name, but never to excuse it. We don't water it down to make it more relevant. Let's move towards liberalism, progressiveness, different interpretations of the day. We don't twist it to appease culture or people that have issues with the word stance on things. We hold firm to the inerrant, all-sufficient, life-giving, and eternal word of God, and we don't add or take away anything from that. Whether through human tradition or assumptions on things we want the Bible to say, but it doesn't. We hold fast to it because it's our priority, it is our authority, and it is our sufficiency for what we believe and how we live. And it means this. I love how commentator Danny Aiken said this. He goes, our godly convictions are not for sale. They are not candidates for compromise. Godly convictions are not for sale. And then, and then notice this, Christ didn't compromise, and neither will we, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice verse 9, Paul says that the elder is to hold firm, why? To the established doctrine of the word, so that he can teach or give instruction in healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict. That means to oppose it. The word rebuke there it gets a bad rep today, and it's totally been abused. Look at this. Rebuke, the Greek there means to correct, to correct with solid, compelling evidence from God's word. That's a loving correction, especially to expose error and false teachers. If I could sum up verse 9, I'd say this. A faithful elder is both a teacher and a defender. He does it in love. He speaks the truth in love. But he holds firm to the truth with unwavering conviction. To sum up what unwavering conviction looks like, last quote on the screen for today is this. Danny Aiken. It means the minister of God places himself gladly and willingly and in full submission under the word. He will preach this word and only this word. He would never think of standing before a congregation and doing anything less than proclaiming the word of God. He will honor what God has said and he will honor how God has said it no matter the cost. Why? Because he's decided to follow Jesus. So, loved ones, look around today and ask, you think the church is in need of, a desperate need of faithful leaders, faithful believers, who will uphold the established truth of God with unwavering conviction, compromises all around us. This isn't a time to sway hope. 
hope. This is not a time to sway, but a time to hold fast. Question, last of the day is this. Are you holding firm to the word of God? Are you holding firm, holding fast to the word of God? Are you willing to give correction to others who've gone astray and instruct them in the truth? Do you love Jesus Christ enough and that person enough to engage it? In the truth, in love. Hey, why not reaffirm your commitment to Christ for that today? That's what he wants. He says we must do that. This is what we, vulnerability here, this is what we as your elders have committed to. Any other man that joins this elder board, whether raised up from this church or at Hope Bible Church Oakville, will be committed to that, will have been tested in that and equipped in that. We give you our word before God Almighty himself. And we are called to be examples for you to follow. Not in our own strength, not in our own wisdom, but in the power, grace, and strength of our Lord Jesus Christ who understood the charge and who lived perfectly above reproach with unwavering conviction against tremendous opposition to compromise and yet he didn't budge. And he who calls us is faithful and will surely do it in and through us. Let's pray. You are our king, Jesus Christ. You have all authority. And Father, even reading through this today, sobered by the truth that you call us to and you have laid out for what healthy leadership, healthy churches, healthy believers are to look like increasingly. And God, I confess it is a, it is a challenge, it is an exhortation that we cannot do on our own and we need you. And the only way we continue to grow faithfully is if Christ is enough for us. Christ is enough, not this world. Christ is enough, not our pride. And so God, I pray that as we declare this last song, these would not just be a confession on our lips, but a heart yearning desire for progression in it through our lives. God, would you please help this church Help this church to hold fast with an unwavering conviction that your way is perfect and every word of yours will prove true and it is a shield for those who take refuge in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.